I keep thinking that today's space over first hour. I want to have to vote that up after the program. In any event, we're here every night, Monday through Friday, from 9 until 10, with a little bit of live and in real time radio. And we hope to bring you programs that are entertaining and uh, uh, educational along the way. One of our guests for many years, I'm guessing about 20 years, if not more, was a gentleman who appeared uh, the first Tuesday of the month. I believe I have it right, and he should be on the other end of the line, and he can correct me in a moment if I've got it wrong. He was His name was Rand Coble, and he was the director of the North Carolina Center for Public Policy Research. Uh, not exactly a think tank, but uh, 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 an educational endeavor that kept an eye on things going on in North Carolina and helped uh, make recommendations to the populace and the leaders as to what might be done. How am I doing, Rand? Oh, you're doing great. I think you can do a commercial for the center now. <laughs> okay, well, that's what I want you to say. Oh, that I had stumbled off in, anywhere. But uh, I got Mr. Coble every Tuesday night for, uh, well, he retired in 2014, although I know he's been working since then on a book and maybe some other endeavors. So well, we had him for a while. And since then, he's continued, continue, continued a tradition that he began while he was on the show, and that is his December show typically was about the reading and listening that he had done that year, uh, uh, CDs, music, and things like that. Well, we're going to talk about books tonight because that's my hobby, and that's where he and I overlapped, and I got some of my best recommendations from him, and uh, I'm going to steal some of them uh, from tonight's show, too. So we're going to talk about books tonight, uh, books that Rand Coble read this past year that he got particular joy out of or uh, education or whatever, and uh, books that you may want to read or you might want to give to somebody for a Christmas present. And having said that, Mr. Coble, I am going to get out of your way and invite you to come in. And Why don't we just start at the top of the list that you sent me this week, and we'll go from there. All righty. Um, well, the first one is a book. I always like to have some good books uh, either written by North, Carolina, North Carolinians or about North Carolina. Uh, and so the first two are in that category. The first one is by David Zucchino, and it's called Wilmington's Lie. And Zucchino went to high school in Fayetteville. He went to college at Chapel Hill. He was a reporter at the NNO in Raleigh and uh, was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting in South Africa. He lives in Durham, and uh, he said that throughout high school and college, the events that happened in Wilmington in 1898 were never mentioned in any of his classes. And so he's written a book about um, really what was a coup of local government officials in 1898, the only coup of gov elected government officials in the whole country's history. Uh, his book is divided into three parts. The first one covers the events between 1865 and 1896. Then it's sort of the years 1896 and 1898 when the coup happened, and then uh, sort of a postscript from there. Um, not many people know it, but right after the Civil War, you had sort of days of hope in terms of race relations and how uh, things were uh, better for African Americans. You had the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery in 1865, then you had the Equal Protection uh, Clause adopted to the Constitution in 1866, and the right to vote for African Americans. Um, in, they couldn't be denied because of race in the Constitution in 1870. Wellington was, uh, I mean, you had a black middle class there. You had local elected officials. 
One of the wealthiest men in Wilmington was Thomas Miller, an African-American. And nearly 80,000 black men registered to vote versus 117,000 white men, uh, with blacks constituting about 56% of the population. So it was really a, a very amazing and different place. Um, in 1896, you had what was called the Fusionist Coalition, where the Republicans uh, were allied with um, blacks who had registered to vote and white populists who were farmers and laborers mostly, uh, but were usually um, sort of poor. Um, and the leaders uh, sort of, of what became the coup were the publisher of the News and Observer, Jonathan Daniels, and Fernifold Simmons of Newburn, who was chair of the state Democratic Party and later a U.S. senator. And so well, can, I, we, can, yeah, Dan, uh-huh. can I offer a correction? It was Josephus Daniels, not Jonathan. I'm sorry, Josephus. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I, I was, well, he's been in the... I'm sorry, I apologize. It's very easy to get the Daniels uh, J's next up. Thank you for doing that. For well, no, that. no, I... I, I I apologize for interrupting my guest while he was doing it, but he's been much in the news lately uh, uh, because of naming of bills, buildings at Chapel Hill and not naming mm-hmm. and removing mm-hmm. statues and things like that. So, and he and Jonathan were at different places on on the on the seat, so to speak. Yep. Jonathan so he was really the uh, instigator. Daniels was of stirring up the white population with right. untrue allegations. Uh, that blacks were stockpiling weapons and were going to riot in the uh, 1898 fall elections and going to take whites' jobs. And so um, through a variety of intimidation and other things, the blacks were scared of um, uh, voting or were turned away at the polls. The Democrats then stuffed ballot boxes. And the result was that the state officials and federal officials uh, who were black all lost, but you still had local black, black local officials, and so uh, that's where the coup came. And uh, so, um, really, through a mixture of violence and just throwing people out and forcing them to resign, uh, about two thousand who were called red shirts, the sort of private militia. And they attacked the black areas in Wilmington, killed about 60 African-Americans in the streets, burned down the black newspaper building, and um, 2,800 of them left town never to return. So this is, this is sort of the coup, and that's Wilmington's lie about what, uh, you know, sort of what had happened in 1898. Zucchino, as a journalist, is a really good writer, and he sort of has filled in a gap in North Carolina history. Uh, one reviewer called it the first great history book of the new decade. And so that's, uh, that's one of my recommendations. If you want to learn some North Carolina history uh, that you probably didn't cover in school, David Zucchino's book, Wilmington's Lie, is it. If, if I can interject one more time, I've already, already used my one interjection tonight. So no, I, I, like David Zucchino, had gotten way on in life and had gone to graduate school and everything else and had never heard of this incident uh, about the Wilmington riots of 1898. But I invited some guests to be on the radio program in 18, I guess it was 1998, and you'll recognize these names, uh, Rand, uh, T- Tim Tyson, uh, David uh-huh. uh, Soselsky, and uh, 
Jeff uh, Crow, and they had edited a book about Wilmington, and uh, that's the first time I found out about it, and I was almost 60 years old at the time. Well, it's, uh, it's not a particularly laudable chapter in our history, but it, it's one we ought to know about. And it's right. a great book. It's really exactly. well written. And you're about to talk about another great book, too. Yeah. Um, as you you and our listeners know, I, I love music. And I finally got me a music a book on North Carolina popular music. And again, this is a former uh, News and Observer writer, the music critic, um, for many years at the NNO, David Menconi, and he's written a book called Step It Up and Go, and uh, the story of North Carolina popular music. And it's just, it's got, you know, it covers different kinds of music. You've got everything from bluegrass to rhythm and blues to rock to pop to alternative to gospel. Um, and the chapters sort of start in the 1920s, so we're talking mostly about recorded music. Uh, with a guy named Charlie Poole, who, who McCutman-Coney calls the, the first rock star in North Carolina. Uh, and then he, then he sort of goes over to the uh, the old blues musicians, uh, particularly Blind Boy Fuller, and then a woman named Elizabeth Cotton from uh, Chapel Hill, who wrote the song Faith, uh, Freight Train. And then he, he switches um, and talks more about sort of innovations in the industry. And the first syndicated show for country music in the country was out of Charlotte and was with a guy named Arthur Smith. And that show was on when I was a child, and I, I didn't like it that much. I, knew, I could recognize that Smith was a great guitar player, but it just wasn't my kind of music then. But in reading this book, I got a whole lot more respect for it. And then the book really takes off when he gets to Earl Scruggs and the birth of bluegrass. Scruggs, you know, with Flatten Scruggs for years, uh, sort of two songs that a lot of people know by him are the Foggy Mountain Breakdown and the Beverly Hillbillies theme song. Uh, and you still got a big connection to bluegrass in North Carolina. In fact, I, I would argue that bluegrass really is, is more North Carolina than any other state in a lot of ways. Uh, with our International Bluegrass uh, Music Association Festival here, it moved from Nashville which they didn't like a lick, uh, and moved to Raleigh in, in uh, 2012. So then he goes on to gospel, like Shirley Caesar in Durham, or Rhythm and Blues, where Maceo Parker is kind of featured. He's the sort of bandmaster and uh, trumpeter for James Brown's band. Uh, to the folk revival, Doc Watson is another key character in the book, and Doc comes across as really fine person and kind to other musicians. Um, he has a chapter, uh, you and I have talked about this, about beach music um, and the Embers and Clyde McFadder and Benny King's songs. Um, he, he, uh, he's, he's, uh, he, he gives beach music its due, and he doesn't confuse it with a lot of, a lot of friends who move from out of state. You know, they say, well, is that the Beach Boys? And they don't really know beach music because it's really kind of unique to North and South Carolina, but uh, he covers that one. Um, and then there are obvious points. He has a whole chapter on um, the uh, famous musicians from TV and American Idol. Uh, if any of our listeners uh, can, uh, we'll give them a little trivia challenge. Is North Carolina's had more American Idol winners than any other state. We've had three. 
and you name them. And uh, I think people go to Scotty McCreary real quick, and they might get Fantasia Barino. I'm not going to tell you who the third one is because that's the one I'm counting on you missing. Uh, so it's it's just a, a great book, um, and it, it's it's funny. Uh, it has the signs that were held out for Scotty McCreary when he won American Idol, like who needs sweet tea when you have Scott tea. Uh, it has sort of funny vignettes like uh, the guy who owned Sugar Hill Records, and it was a one-man operation, and he'd change his voice when someone called so it would sound like he had a, a secretary. Uh, and it had it has an appreciation for music written by music critics, so it's not just, um, you know, who sold the most records, it's who was the most influential. So I'd highly recommend David Minconi's Step It Up and Go, The Story of North Carolina Popular Music. Well, I, I like that one too, and in fact, that that may be my favorite book that I have have read this year, particularly because. Uh, well, I was going to ask you, Rand, but it may be unfair. But what is your? And then we, we need to take a break. What is your favorite beach music song? Do you have one? <laughs> I, I think that would uh, definitely uh, be the uh, one of the Temptation songs. Uh, so, uh, it, uh, the sun is shining, the moon is bright. Uh, you know, since since I lost my baby, I think is what okay. I said. Well, I'll offer you mine. It's Rainy Day Bells by the Harlem Globetrotters. And so, uh-huh. uh, so there it is. Rand Coble is our guest tonight. He's just been talking about a book about North Carolina music. He's going to be talking about books about a lot of other things, too. He's made a selection of his favorites from this past year, and he's our guest on the program tonight. And we'll be back with him in just a couple of minutes. anniversary of the Spanish flu, 
and guess what was ready uh, for people to read as soon as the, the latest pandemic came around with his book. To put the Spanish flu in perspective, it killed more people in one year than the Black Death did in a century. And it killed more than the number killed in, the, in World War I, which was going on at the same time. And it killed more in 24 weeks than AIDS killed in 24 years. So, it, it, you know, people think about COVID, and COVID is, uh, I heard a doctor say, it's a weak virus. Well, this one was strong, and it was ugly uh, in terms of how badly people suffered. Um, it's, the first part of the book is a history of medicine and how bad off it was at the time. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes who is quoted, he's the physician father of the Supreme Court Justice, and he said, uh, he was critical of his own profession. He said, I firmly believe that the whole uh, medical profession or medicine as now used could be sunk to the bottom of the sea. It would be all the better for mankind and all the worse for the fishes. So this Spanish, the pandemic of the Spanish flu really uh, made medicine step up and develop. It probably began in Haskell County, Kansas, and it really took off at military bases. Remember that the U.S. had not entered the war when it started in 1914 to 17, but when the U.S. entered the war in 18, 1918, soldiers were being trained and moved from base to base for training, and they were packed together like sardines and then put in ships to be delivered quickly to the war in Europe. And the ships, as the author puts it, became floating caskets. And so once they got over there, the flu just, you know, spread across both the U.S. and across other countries. And as uh, one of the uh, hardest hit cities, Philadelphia, uh, the newspaper there said there weren't enough coffins nor enough grave diggers to handle the onslaught. Um, he contrasts um, in the book sort of how leadership mattered where in Philadelphia, the city officials ignored warnings and allowed a uh, liberty-loan patriotic parade to proceed, and within 72 hours, every bed in Philly's hospitals were filled. And by contrast, in South San Francisco, uh, leader, city leaders there jointly signed a full-page statement in the newspaper that said in all caps, wear a mask and save your life. And San Francisco teachers volunteered as uh, since the schools were closed, uh, to be anything from ambulance drivers to telephone operators. And so, Rand, uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, and, uh, and John, we uh -huh. need to take a little break here because it's time to find out what's going on in the world in the half-hour news. And then we'll be back on WPTF. It's uh, 9.30. Our guest tonight talking about, as he has every year for probably the last 15 years in the month of December, his best reading of the year. Some good suggestions for personal reading and maybe for a Christmas present. Uh, Rand, should we go back to John Barry or should we go ahead? Um, let's um, let's skip that one and just say if you're interested in reading about the parallels between the 1918 Spanish flu and how much that uh, is similar to what we're going through and how we might get out of it, uh, try out John Barry's book, The Great Influenza of 1918. May I interject? Yes. Uh, I, John Barry 
that's a great book. I, I read it when the the other edition came out, the first edition, and he was on our program with us. But he has another book called Rising Tide, which is one of the best yes. books I've ever read. It's about the uh, Mississippi flood. Is that right? Yeah, Mississippi flood of 1927, right. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. he, sort of, he writes about disasters. This is his main topic. <laughs> well, he likes to deal with medicine and, and, and uh, disaster, you know, death and things yep. like that. And so he's a science writer, I think, technically is what he defines himself as. But in any event, that was my one kibitz for that. that, that well, and he, he writes well. That's, that's one theme through all these picks, is these people are uh, accessible and uh, often funny writers, and uh, there's not much funny to a pandemic, but uh, it's a really good book. Our, our next one is about race, and, and uh, its title, though, is going to sort of confuse people, but uh, it is the first 20 pages of Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, C-A-S-T-E, The Origins of Our Discontent. This book has won all kinds of awards. It's been on lots of best uh, best books of the year list. Um, I just, at the, after the first 20 pages, I thought this is the best thing I've read in, in a decade. Um, it opens with a, it's really about caste and race. And what she's done is she's spent time in India looking at their caste system. She looked at uh, Nazi Germany. And she looked at race relations over the whole history of the country and is writing about how um, sort of that has hurt the country. And she opens with a marvelous story about a black and white photo taken in 1936 during Hitler's Third Reich. And it shows about 100 shipyard workers holding their right arms out in sort of this Sig Heil uh, salute to the Fuhrer. But there's one man in the picture that has kept his arms folded and refused to salute. And Wilkerson said he is the one man standing against the tide who is on the right side of history. And then she tells his story because they tracked down the man from that photo as a member of the Nazi party, but he was in love with a Jewish woman, and he knew that the recently enacted Nuremberg laws had made their relationship illegal. So then she tells this amazing story that the Nazis actually, in putting together their laws against Jewish people, uh, gypsies or Roma and other people, non-Aryans, they actually studied the U.S. laws on race as the model for their laws. And that just shocked me. I mean, this, that story of sort of thinking that we helped the, the Nazis do what they did uh, really tore into me. And she says the caste system holds everyone in a fixed place. And so she looks at Southern miscegenation laws that prevented sex or intermarriage um, uh, between uh, blacks and whites. They copied U.S. race laws. They had their form of eugenics laws. Um, and actually several of the Nazi researchers thought American law went overboard with things like our one-drop rule, where if an American had even one drop of African-American blood, they were considered to be black. So from there, she goes to eight pillars of caste, sort of how you recognize it, and those also are pretty uh, amazing. And she's, she's the expert at what I'd call hidden history, in the same way that Wilmington, the Wilmington Lie uh, is hidden history in North Carolina. 
uh, and she tells these sort of revealing stories along the way. Uh, one was about a black man named Harold Hale, who hated the presumption of familiarity that whites used in calling blacks by their first names. And so he named his daughter Miss, so that she couldn't be denied the respectful title of Miss Hale. Uh, and the, the book is full of that. It mixes in politics and sort of analysis of why a lot of people were seen to vote against their political interests and vote for Trump in the 2016 election. And she explains it. She said this is, this is uh, sort of um, something that would be expected. And she and Gwen Ifill of uh, PBS had actually predicted that outcome. But overall, she says, I'm like a building inspector or a radiologist presenting an X-ray of, of the United States. And so it's, it's really revealing in terms of making you think about race relations in the U.S., and she's reframed it in terms of caste. So in terms of the, the two biggest issues of 2020, uh, you got the great influenza book to deal with uh, the pandemic, and you got caste by Isabel Wilkerson to deal with, uh, to make you think more about race. And as I say, it is just a fantastically written book and is on a lot of people's best books of the year list. Well, Ray, you've got a real choice to make now because uh, at the Latin people, you know, people who use Latin would say Tempest Fugit, which of course means <laughs> But uh, you've got a choice between uh, talking about Robert Cairo, who's tackled a momentous task and may in fact complete it. Uh, uh, an unusual group of uh, a study of uh, things in Iceland and three novels. And I, I'm going to be interested to see which way you go. Well, I'm going to do Caro short. Uh, I mentioned people ask me, you know, well, how do you pick the things you pick? And I do try to read one volume in a multi-volume series each year. And this year I finished the fourth volume of Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson. Now, he's 85 years old, and he's still got one more volume, but this fourth volume is sort of the, the years where Johnson goes from majority leader in the Senate to vice president under Kennedy, and when Kennedy is assassinated, becomes president. And it is, it's like the other volumes. It's just a great biography. If you like biographies of presidents, I highly recommend Robert Caro's The Passage of Power. But I'm going to go, uh, you gave me the choice, I'm going to go to the funniest book I read this year. It's by a woman named Kendra Green, with an E on the end, like Green County in North Carolina. And my wife and that, my wife loves nature, and she's always wanted to go to Iceland, and so we had planned to take a trip to Iceland this year. And, of course, the pandemic uh, ended any hopes of doing that. So my substitute trip was to read this book by Kendra Kendra Green called The Museum of Wales You Will Never See and Other Excursions to Iceland's Most Unusual Museums. And this is hilarious. Uh, it, it might be my favorite book of the year just because it's so funny and it lifted my spirits. Um, but if, it's not really like a tour guide or a guidebook, a uh, travel guide or something. It's you know what people say when I tell them about it. They, their first reaction is, I don't want to read about 265 museums. Uh, it's, it's more like a trip to culture and travel and how you sort of explore another culture. And she did it by going to all of Iceland's weird museums. And so she tells about 
Um, I mean, as an example of her humor, she in the coastal town, she she finds out that you should never buy a fish there. You just go down to the docks and yell out what kind of fish and say you want to buy one, and the fisherman will throw one right into your arms, and the fish is longer than any bone in your arm, and uh, that's uh, to, for them that's a runt fish. And she says, "How much?" And they'll wave you off. And then they have a lot of puffins in Iceland. And the puffins are not built for flight. Uh, they've got short wings. And they never glide or soar. And they never stop flapping their wings in flight. And she says, the puffin's expression is of constant shock that any of this is working out. So, obviously, <laughs> the, uh, she says some museums are logical choices for a visit, uh, like the Herring Era Museum, Herring Fish. Um, that Iceland's history was really as a fishing country from 1903 to 1968. Uh, but she talks about how weird those fish are and how the museum depicts them as they swim with their mouths open, expanded, so that they can feed as they swim. And then they also arrange themselves on grids when they swim. And what we don't know is how they pick their migration path. And for, you know, 68 years, they picked their migration path right by Iceland, but then 69, they just changed and were gone. Um, then she talks about the nature of museums. Um, she said a museum really represents the utter faith that someone else might love the thing that we love. And she starts wondering how something that somebody corrects becomes a museum. And she says, someone starts collecting something. And then the local media finds out that you have an interest. And they publish something. And then people ask us to come ask to see what you've got at your house. And they make appointments to come over. And then with every inquiry, the private collection becomes a little more public. And she, she then uh, sort of goes to some of the weird museums, like museums of things that you can't see. And so Iceland, of course, has a museum of sorcery and witchcraft. And she goes into the history of Iceland where 170 individuals are accused of witchcraft in the Icelandic courts, and 21 are convicted and burned to death. And then culturally, there's 37 words for magic and sorcery in Iceland. But of course, you can't see any of that. And so... Uh, it, she then talks about, well, what, what are the things that people ask for when they're trying to put a spell on somebody? And usually it's either love magic or to get back what, something that's been stolen from you. And so uh, before Iceland had, had uh, home, home rule in 1874, before it had uh, sovereignty in 1918, before it had independence in 1944, it had a museum. And so uh, this is... This is just a fun book. It's not a travel guide, but Kindred Green's The Museum of Whales You Will Never See. And uh, it's just funny as it can be. So that's that's my recommendation there. Do we have time for one of the novels? Uh, what we're going to do is take a break here, and on the other side of the break, you get one more book. It can be one of the novels. It can be uh, something about Chernobyl or the lady who won the, the uh, prize for dealing with landmines. One of those, and then we're going to take about five minutes and run down, you know, the list, you know, of the, the okay. ones that we couldn't get on tonight. Does that sound okay? Okay. okay. Yep. John, I'm going to come back to the we'll novel. Come back quickly. All righty. 
are back on WTTF, the time Kearney Show, and the clock just, just clicked over at 9.50. Rand Coble is our guest tonight, and he's giving us uh, a ride through some of the best reading he's done this year. Rand, are you there? I am. Uh, John said to me, how are you doing? I said, the only thing I regret is we don't have enough time. So you have a carte blanche for another night anytime you're ready to come back and do it, okay? Uh, Randy, thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you. But in the in the meantime, let's take uh, one book, and then we'll, we'll we'll get you to run down some that maybe didn't have time to get okay. on the air tonight. Your choice of the book. Um, we haven't done a novel yet, and so I'm going to pick the best novel I read this year. It's called Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, and it's by a Polish writer named Olga Tokarczuk. So you have to just sort of go in and say, give me that Polish woman's uh, novel. Uh, she won the Nobel Prize for Literature in, uh, last year, and she's got another book out that's been translated, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. And it's it's sort of a literary murder mystery. It's part fable, and one reviewer called it, and I quote, marvelously weird. Uh, the main character is a woman named Janina, who's a former bridge construction engineer, then a teacher, now she takes care of seven summer homes of wealthy people from Warsaw, and she's got this cast of characters around her in her neighbor in her very rural neighborhood, and she's named them sort of crazy names like Dizzy and Oddball, and the woman who runs the bookstore is called Good News. And then all of a sudden, murders start taking place, five of them, everybody from Bigfoot, her neighbor, to the police commandant, to a guy named Ennert, who had bribed the commandant, to the president himself, and then the local Catholic priest, who she calls Father Russell, because his skin is, he's old and his skin is loose, and so he rustles when he walks. And so to, uh, what Janina does is she writes letters to the local police and says, what's happening is that local animals are taking revenge on humans, uh, because all the hunters in the area, and she writes letters to the police explaining her theory. Uh, and she also gives a history of animals that were, and this part's true, that were actually tried in courts for killing humans. Uh, and so she um, enumerates these historic examples of animals being charged for similar crimes, like St. Bernard was ex excommunicated a swarm of bees who prevented him from working. And then in 1394 in France, some pigs ate, killed and ate a child, and the sow was sentenced to hang, but her six children were spared. Uh, so it's marvelously weird, I think, is a good uh, good phrase for that. It was made into a film in 2017, uh, but I'll, I'll sort of take you near the middle of the book because what happens is Janina becomes a suspect herself. And so read the book, figure out who, uh, who done it, and uh, just have fun with great writing and a great sense of humor. Olga Tokarczuk, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. Real quick, uh, one other novel that I liked. I, you can tell I like reading books that have been translated into English by star writers from other countries. There's a woman from Oman called Joka, J-O-K-H-A, last name Alharti, A. A-L-H-A-R-T-I-T-H-I. And her novel is Celestial Bodies. It won the Man Booker Prize. And it's sort of uh, three generations of two families and especially three sisters. And I love 
historical fiction where you get to get a history of a country along with the history of the families, and that's what Celestial Bodies is. So those are two novels that I'd recommend. And now, how about, do you have uh, any, uh, did we just would do a little, the titles of them and the authors? All right. Uh, these are other things that were on my list that uh, we'd have to get to in a, a second program or something. Um, I, I, I got hooked on HBO's uh, uh, series on Chernobyl, that the nuclear accident at Chernobyl. Two books there. One about a Russian woman who named Svetlana Alexeyevich, but she did an oral history of interviews based on 500 interviews with people from Chernobyl, and it's called Voices from Chernobyl. I've never read anything like it, and it's really powerful. And then if you want more just a journalistic history, the book that won some awards, Adam Higginbotham, Midnight in Chernobyl. Um, and then because I worked in a nonprofit for 33 years, I always like to read one book about some nonprofit that uh, did great work. And I, so I read a book about the international campaign to ban landmines. And the woman's name was Jody Williams. She spoke at Meredith, Meredith College here a couple of years ago. I know your wife worked there for years, uh, so maybe she heard her. But uh, the name of the book is My Name is Jody Williams, A Vermont Girl's Winding Path to the Nobel Peace Prize. And it's her autobiography. She won the Peace Prize in 1997, and she got an international treaty banning landmines adopted by 164 countries in 1999. It's an amazing story of one little nonprofit uh, having effect on 164 countries. So those are some other books um, on the list for the year. And um, did, we, did we do it in time? <laughs> we did it in time. We've got, uh, in fact, a few seconds to spare. Just for one quick question, was that the last thing that Jody Williams did, wasn't uh, Princess Di interested in that particular? Oh, uh, you're good. Um, Princess Di was very instrumental in this. Uh, she actually um, done sort of armor and headgear and walked through a minefield in Angola and then did the same in Bosnia uh, to sort of bring attention to it. And the, the day that they were uh, debating the treaty in 1999, the night before, Princess Di was killed in that auto accident, and so it was. Um, it sort of sobered everybody up, but also I think gave people a incentive to sort of pass the treaty as a memorial to her. Excellent, excellent. Well, I thank you so much for doing this, and uh, you sent me another piece of email uh, about a month and a half ago, and uh, it had to do with things political, and uh, it uh, was was a good thing to read, as a matter of fact, and I appreciate well, you thank keeping you, me on. Keep me on your list. So I'll do it. <laughs> well, I, I, thank you so much, thanks. Tom, and a warm hello to all of our listeners. It's good to be back with you. All right. Take care. Good night. Rand Coble, uh, our, a longtime member of our radio family, uh, and uh, for about the last 15 years, maybe a little more, he's come in December and presented uh, his choice of good reading for the year, and he himself is writing a book, and I look forward to having him on so we can interview him. Tomorrow night, Pam Beck, uh, another member of our radio family, is going to be here and talk about plants and the things that are symbols of the holiday season. Join us then.